Welcome to In Step with your host, Dr. Mike Martaccio and Deacon Jerry White. In Step is a podcast where we walk alongside those who walk alongside us here in the diocese. Today, we're delighted to have Father J. Scott Newman, pastor of St. Mary's, and also the dean of the Greenville Deanery. Welcome, Father Newman. Welcome, Father Newman. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. So tell us, first of all, how long have you been at, at, uh, at St. Mary's here in Greenville? I came here in June of 2001, so um, in June of this year, I'll celebrate my 20th anniversary here. Wow. And what are some of the other parishes you have served at? Uh, when I was newly ordained, my first year as a priest, I spent back in Rome in graduate school to finish canon law studies. Uh, so my second year as a priest, my first year back home, was uh, Catholic chaplain to the Citadel. I was the last full-time priest to serve in that ministry. Then for a year, I was pastor of St. Mark's Newberry and St. Boniface Joanna, and then four years pastor of Divine Redeemer Hanahan, and then I went away to teach uh, at the Pontifical College Josephinum in Ohio, which was meant to be a long assignment, but uh, in the months just after I left South Carolina, uh, we lost uh, about 8% of the active diocesan presbyterate. Uh, all at once, uh, unexpected deaths, resignations from ministry. So in the spring of 2001, Bishop Baker called to say, will it break your heart if I ask you to come home and be a pastor? And I said, well, that depends. Where do you want me to go? And, and he, was, uh, he was trying to reassure me that though it was a long way from Charleston, he would get me back to the low country as soon as possible. Uh, and then when it turned out it was Greenville, I said, I will gladly go to Greenville on one condition, you never move me again. <laughs> he thought it was a joke, but I was dead serious. <laughs> so, so what, what yeah. are some of the, the diocesan roles? Because you serve as pastor here at, at St. Mary's, but you serve as other roles. Uh, over the years, I have um, served on the diocesan vocations board as a canon lawyer in the tribunal. Um, uh, for the last 11 years, I've been the dean of the Greenville Deanery, uh, which also uh, gives me a seat on the Presbyteral Council, uh, the Priest Personnel Board, and the College of Consultors. So I'm going to walk back a little bit there and maybe you give an explanation of what do you do um, as the Dean um, for the, the Deanery of Greenville? What, what are the roles that you do? In a Dean is a Vicar of the Bishop um, who is not in the Chancery like the Vicar General or the Judicial Vicar but is out in the field. That's literally what the Latin term means. Uh, vicar forain, vicarius forenus, is best translated uh, vicar out in the field. We used to be called the rural deans for that very reason. So out in the field to be a vicar of the bishop, uh, basically to coordinate the work of the priests in the parishes of that deanery. Uh, so that entails hosting monthly meetings, uh, being sure that when the priests are sick or on vacation that someone's available to cover their parish, answering questions about um, administration or uh, sacramental celebration when those arise, just a general uh, um, role of coordination. Okay, and Presbyteral Council? The Presbyteral Council is an institution which serves like a senate to advise the bishop on questions of great importance to the diocese. And it's about 20 priests uh, who meet uh, four or five times a year 
to discuss whatever the bishop asks us to discuss and offer um, advice to him on those matters that he asks us to take up. And the last one, the college consultors, which is probably going to be kind of important as, as we go through the, the change with the bishop. Sure. Um, the College of Consultors um, is a subgroup of the Presbyteral Council, really. It, it overlaps, but it has a distinct role um, in, um, if the, for example, if the diocese wants to um, borrow money or sell property above a certain amount of money, uh, the bishop needs to get the opinion of the College of Consultors and the Diocesan Finance Council, just like a pastor needs to do the same with a parish finance council. Um, the College of Consultors uh, can function as the Presbyteral Council if a diocese doesn't have a bishop. So, for example, uh, from October of 2007 to March of 2009, we didn't have a diocesan bishop. Bishop Baker was moved to Birmingham, Alabama. Bishop Guglielmoni didn't arrive until March of 09. And in those intervening months, uh, the diocesan administrator worked with the College of Consultors to govern the diocese. Um, perhaps the most important function the College of Consultors exercises if a diocesan bishop dies or is transferred is to meet and elect the diocesan administrator, a priest usually from among the, the consultors who handles administration while we wait for a new bishop. So you, you had mentioned that you uh, did some time uh, did some time with the tri with the tribunal and uh, that you have a background in canon law. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about, first of all, uh, how did you first get interested in canon law in general? And then what's uh, what's what does the tribunal do? And uh, and what does that look like day to day? When seminarians are assigned to study in Rome, um, the, the first um, three years are general theological education common to everybody. After the first three years comes a next phase of specialization in which a given man may study uh, dogmatic theology or church history uh, or any of the sacred disciplines subdivided. And when that time came for me, uh, Bishop David Thompson, who was then the ordinary, said, we need an, another canon lawyer. So I want you to study canon law, um, which I did um, my fourth year and fifth year in Rome at the bishop's direction. The purpose of canon law is to provide a foundation for the administration of justice in the church. Uh, we think of the church's spiritual mission first, for obvious reasons, but the church worldwide owns property and has employees everywhere. Um, the church receives financial gifts from the lay faithful everywhere. Um, the church operates institutions like schools and clinics and hospitals everywhere. How those things are administered uh, is the um, responsibility of canon law. In addition, questions about the celebration of the sacraments. Who's eligible, for example, to be baptized or confirmed? Who may lawfully receive Holy Communion? Who can be married in the church? Who can be ordained? These are questions touched on by canon law. So every diocese in the world has a court or tribunal, the purpose of which is to provide assistance to the bishop in the administration of justice. And 
what most Catholics encounter when they hear the tribunal is um, trying to resolve the question about the validity of a marriage. So um, if, if a Catholic gets married and that marriage later ends in divorce, in order to be free to marry as though for the first time, that person has to have uh, the prior marriage examined by a tribunal, which uses a well-established canonical theological process to determine whether or not that union was a sacrament of Christ and his church or merely a civil contract, which when it was dissolved by the court through a divorce decree, ended whatever bond existed. But the tribunal, as a general matter, helps the bishop in all matters of canon law. We're going to sort of jump back uh, before you became a priest. Um, I read in your bio you have a very interesting background. Um, you were raised Southern Baptist or my, in a Baptist church? My father's family were Southern Baptists. My mother's family belonged to the Church of the Brethren, which, like the Baptist church, is an Anabaptist uh, um, communion of Protestants, in this case founded in Germany by Alexander Mack. Anabaptist uh, means to baptize again. If someone was baptized in infancy, the Anabaptist movement emerging from the Reformation insisted that only those who can make their own profession of faith can truly be baptized, no infant baptism. So um, because both the Brethren and Baptists don't baptize children, I was never baptized. Hmm. Uh, we went to church with with family, especially at holidays. Um, but when I was in middle school, I became an atheist. And instead of asking for baptism, it was about the age I would normally have asked for baptism. So instead of asking for baptism, I announced to my mother one day, there is no God. And you're still standing here. <laughs> I, I am. My, my, my mother wisely knew, uh, don't engage directly, just you know, look over the newspaper, that's nice dear, and, and get on to things, realizing I would sort through this uh, in my own time and way. But something happened in college for you. Well, I, I left the South to go to college in New Jersey in large measure because I wanted to escape the Christ-haunted South. <laughs> I deliberately chose to go north because I thought the, the light of pure reason in a culture that isn't shackled by the superstition of Christianity is where I will flourish. And so to my everlasting wonderment, when I got to Princeton, I discovered all of these serious Christians, hmm. evenly divided between evangelical Protestants and evangelical Catholics. And uh, over the course of um, a year and a half, lots of influences working in my life led to a profound conversion experience in October of 1981, my sophomore year of college, which was a very intense experience of um, conversion and conviction um, from which I derived um, a uh, an intuition of the truth of the gospel and a desire to be baptized. What was it specifically that uh, that struck you, first of all, about Christianity and then Catholicism in particular? As a boy growing up uh, in the South, I thought of Christianity as um, um, superstition left over from the childhood of the human race. We have to invoke the gods to explain thunder and lightning. Uh, and 
I wasn't exposed to, to very sophisticated uh, explanations of the gospel, and so it was easy for a precocious adolescent to sneer and say, this is not for me. So when I got to school, uh, I took a course called Christianity and its Critics for two reasons. First, it fulfilled, <laughs> it, fu it fulfilled a university liberal arts requirement, and I thought, this will arm me to do battle, right? <laughs> A but new the, way of apologetics. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> but the, 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 the unintended effect was that for the first time in my life, I was confronted with sophisticated, uh, deep explanations of Christian belief. Augustine, Aquinas. Mm -hmm. yeah. And wrestling with the ideas that I had to criticize awakened in me a sort of grudging respect for the depth of these ideas. You, uh, you begin to see when you read uh, how the best of secular thought, say Plato and Aristotle, right. um, um, is not in any way uh, greater than the best of Christian thought. Um, so, grudging respect. Then the influence of friends, uh, very serious Christians who were bright, energetic people doing the same things I wanted to do. Uh, but we're serious Christians. That was puzzling. Uh, the influence of a girlfriend, um, a young woman whom I loved quite deeply, who was a serious Christian, uh, and who one day said to me, sort of out of the blue, you know, I could never marry a man who didn't share my faith, which was not what I wanted to hear at the moment. Um, and the summer between freshman and sophomore year, uh, one of my classmates died, um, a 19-year-old boy vigorous athletic man dropped over dead of a congenital heart defect which until that moment was unknown it was the first time in my life a peer had died you know if you're if your 85 year old great aunt dies no one is surprised but when a 19 year old athlete drops dead that yeah. is earth changing earth shattering so um the final event was in the that month of october 81 one of my classmates, who was a very serious Christian and, and who had studied the scriptures deeply from his youth, asked if I would read with him St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't think of a polite way to say no, so I, I, did it, <laughs> I did it simply because he asked. And we'll come back to the importance of that in a moment. Right. He asked. Right. Mm -hmm. And so sort of a guided reading verse by verse through Ephesians, and that probably took three weeks, and on the evening in question, we'd been to dinner together, and we got back to my room, and he said, so, what do you think? And I said, well, and this is what surprised me. I, as the words were coming out of my mouth, mm. I said, I'd like to think that this is all true. The, the opening verses of chapter one of Ephesians, the summary of the eternal plan of salvation, are so majestic this vision of the universe not as random and meaningless, but as ordered and purposeful, emerging from the mind of God from all eternity for the salvation of the human race, to share the glory of divine life with all created persons forever. I said, I wish that this were true, but I, I just don't know how to believe it. And he asked, would you pray with me? And I had not consciously prayed since the moment in middle school when I became an atheist. There were a couple of intuitions of the numinous presence of God. Princeton has a magnificent, magnificent Gothic chapel, 
And sitting in there uh, in the twilight in the spring of my freshman year, I remember in the solitude and silence of this magnificent building thinking, I know you're not there. And in the, of the, uh, in the moment of the thought, I was aware of the paradox. If he is not there, then to whom are you speaking? Right. <laughs> and I got up and ran for the door. <laughs> so moments like that had happened. But now I'm confronted with the question of, will I pray? And again, I didn't know how to say no. So I said sort of grudgingly, haltingly, well, okay. And he asked if I would kneel on the floor as he knelt. And he began to pray. First, giving thanks and praise to God for his glory, for his gifts to us, for our friendship, for our dead friend, for uh, the beauty of scripture, for the truth of the gospel, and then praying for my faith, for the gift of faith for me. And as he prayed, the only way I can describe the experience is to say that first my heart was burning within me and then I was inside the fire. And it was a transforming, purifying, illuminating fire. And I don't know whether it lasted two seconds or two hours, but when the experience was over and I came back to myself, I knew that Jesus Christ is Lord more surely than I know that I exist. Mm -hmm. And my first question to him when we stood up from the floor was, where do I go to be baptized? <laughs> and immediately I was confronted with the division among Christians. He was a Presbyterian. My friend who died was an Anglican. Why aren't Presbyterians Anglicans? Why aren't Lutherans Baptists? And why is it the only thing they all agree about is that they're not Catholics? Right. And <laughs> I want to pause right there because I want you to pick up that, that, that point. But I just want to, uh, uh, I don't know, make an observation that, uh, that I think is, is important here that... that um, your journey started with the with a with an intellectual hurdle, right. and once you once you cleared that, you weren't all the way to faith yet. No. The death of a friend, the love of a woman, the the witness of a peer, the beauty of a Gothic building, all of these things working like uh, small streams that come together eventually to form one river. It was it was all of those things together. We call that the Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The living waters of the Holy Spirit. You really experienced Pentecost in a way. I did. Um, but, October the fifteenth, nineteen eighty one. And so yeah. that's that's your rebirth, really, in a way. It you was. Know, spiritually, wow, that's powerful. It is. So the man who died was an Episcopalian, and when we got back to school, the Episcopal priest on campus led a memorial service for him. He was the only clergyman I knew at the university, so I went to him, told him what happened, asked about baptism, and why. asked him to explain why there are these divisions among Christians. And he said, look, you don't have to sort out 2,000 years of church history before you were baptized because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? So uh, let's concentrate on that while you sort of undo for yourself all questions about Christian unity. And in the service of that, there are two broad approaches. Start now and work backwards in time or start in the New Testament and work forwards in time. Don't try to do them together, was his counsel. So in January of 82, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church um, while that search was going on and 
in July of that year, 82, I remember closing um, the book that I was reading at the time, which was John Henry Newman, uh, The Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Newman reads Newman. <laughs> and, and when I closed it, I said, I have to be a Catholic. And I called a friend uh, and said, I have to be a Catholic. Can you introduce me to a priest? Up to that moment, I'd never met a Catholic priest. <laughs> wow. wow. And so what was it about Newman's Apologia that, that really um, um, hit you, hit home? The, the, the intellectual sophistication of an Oxford professor mm-hmm. who had a profound conversion, not unlike my own, when he was in high school, uh, who dedicated his life to uh, the study of church history and theology, uh, who puzzled through um, the uh, divisions of the 16th century and after, particularly as they were experienced in England, and who came to the conclusion in the middle of his life that to belong to the same church that uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon and Augustine of Hippo and Thomas Aquinas belonged to, he had to be in full communion with the Bishop of Church of Rome. And so, in, you know, at the height of his uh, popularity and influence as a priest of the Church of England and a professor at Oxford, he resigned it all to become a Catholic. And um, this book is, is written 20, more than 20 years after the fact of that to explain to other people why he came to those conclusions and how they shaped his life. And he helped me answer those questions in my life. So we're going to jump ahead here uh, from that point to suddenly now you're, you're Catholic. And where did this I want to be a priest come from? Well, uh, when I called my friend and said, I ha- can you send me to a priest? I have to be a Catholic. He suggested a priest. I called and introduced myself. I went to meet him. Uh, th- this is just a few years before the RCIA uh, became normative in parishes. There wasn't an RCIA yet. So he set a schedule for us to meet for individual instruction, and he gave me books to read. And so I came back for the second visit the following week, having done my homework, and I had a series of questions, and uh, we probably spoke about 90 minutes, and when we were done, he said, um, so, do you have any more questions for today? And I hesitated a moment, and I said, well, Father, I re- I, I, and I'm stammering, because the words aren't coming. I, I just don't know how to, I, I'm not sure what, and he said, you want to be a priest? I said, yes. How did you know that? He said, well, I resolved last week that if you didn't mention it this week, I was going to ask you next week. He said, it's written all over your face. Somehow, this, this path from atheism to Christianity into full communion with the church had awakened in me a yearning to be a servant of the gospel the rest of my life. So becoming a Catholic and the desire to be a priest were awakened in me at the same time. How has your own journey, your own background in this amazing conversion, how has that helped you in your ministry as a priest? 
Well, let's say it took seven years from atheism to Catholic and another 10 years from Catholic to my diaconal ordination. Mm -hmm. So 17 years of journeying and wandering and getting lost more than once and mm -hmm. starting down what turned out to be dead ends and taking blind turns. All of that um, prepared me to help people who are also seeking. Sometimes they, they know not what. People who are lost in a variety of ways, in the usual um, sorrows of human life, um, addiction, grief, betrayal, um, unrequited love, um, moral struggles, whatever it is. When you've spent as many years as I spent in chaos and confusion, there's sort of a natural uh, understanding of what's going on inside someone who's lost. So that has shaped the way I exercise my ministry one-on-one. -on -one. Let me follow up real fast with that. I'm sure this has happened to you a lot of times. A mother or a father comes in or they both come in and say, hey, I have a teenage son or daughter who they they're they're not practicing anymore right. they don't want to go to church anymore right um they're not, all the time. they're not even sure who god is anymore or, or if there is a god what what would you say or what do you say to those parents of how how they can go through something like this and what, what are your words of advice for them be not afraid don't argue bear faithful witness mm. Uh, be not afraid is simple. Um, God's grace is abundant and available um, to all of us and will not only lead the lost, but go in search of the lost. Mm. Yes. The mission of the Messiah teaches us that with great clarity. Don't argue. People are not led to love the Lord Jesus um, and believe in the truth of his gospel um, by getting it pounded into their head yeah. um, um, and bear faithful witness. People are brought to Christ in the way I was by other Christians who love the Lord, who know the gospel and who are striving to live it in a way that attracts other people, even your own family. Evangelizing your own family is notoriously difficult. Even the Lord Jesus encountered <laughs> right. right? No prophet is without honor except in his native place. Um, so there's a there's a, a, a sort of built-in limitation to how much direct evangelization can take place even between parent and child, but the over time the gravitational force of parents in the lives of their children or even siblings on each other can be profoundly powerful. So the witness is really important of them saying, "Okay, you're not going to church. We're going to church right now." Right. Imagine and, a father who's leaving Sunday morning. The teenager is still in the sack. Yeah. And he says, son, we're going to Mass. We'll see you when we get home. We'll be praying for you. That's all. Yeah. And, and that is the other key is that daily prayer of, of conversion for them. Not, not, not praying that I'm, as a parent, I'm going to convert them. But the Holy Spirit is going to convert them by sending somebody into their life or by the way we're living our life. Um, so thank you. I, I, that's a, I mean, as a pastor, you know, you get that a lot of times, you know, and, and I think you're right when you can't argue 
you can't win that argument. 20% of all the Catholics who were practicing the faith in the United States in the year 2000 no longer practice. Right. And that was before COVID. Right. They just wandered off, um, perhaps because of the uh, scandals of sexual abuse in the church, perhaps because of some personal disappointment, perhaps because of the, the cultural air we breathe, which is increasingly hostile to the God and religion of the Bible. Um, for whatever reason, a fifth of all the Catholics who were practicing 20 years ago are gone. Uh, the number of people in America who say they have no religion at all is the fastest growing segment of American population. The nuns. The nuns. Yeah. Not the not the sisters. Not not in U N, but you know in E. Thank you. Nuns, I just, right. We better clarify that. Right. <laughs> so so I guess the the the, the question um, with with all that being true, so what what do we do? What do we as as practicing Catholics, as people working for the church, or as people um, in the pews, what what do we do? Know the gospel, love the gospel, share the gospel. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ conquered Europe over 1,600 years ago. So from the time of the resurrection until, say, the Edict of Toleration, uh, not quite three centuries, to be a Christian was to be a criminal, an outlaw. Nobody asked for baptism when doing so meant you could be arrested your property confiscated, your family sold into slavery. It was a perilous thing. The, the paradox of the triumph of the gospel in the, the Roman Empire was that it went from being um, a criminal enterprise to being expected of everybody, respectable, almost overnight. And Christian civilization was the result. And for... Uh, 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 years, to be a European was to be a Christian. In that sense, culture transmitted the gospel. Mm -hmm. The ambient culture assisted the church in proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and people were formed by the um, customs uh, and mores of their time and place. That is gone forever, or at least gone for the next millennium. Now it's the opposite. It's like the first three centuries. The ambient culture is completely against us. To be a Christian is to, it's not, it's not yet to be an outlaw, but it's yes. to be a freak. Close, yes. it's, it's to be an outsider. Um, and in that context, we, we have to retrieve from our ancient history patterns of Christian discipleship that sustained us in those first centuries when Christianity was a dangerous thing. So, if I can change the metaphor, in those centuries of Christendom, there was a sense in which Christians lived an ecclesiocentric life. The church was at the center of the fact of Christian faith and life. Now, that can no longer be the case. In fact, the church, for too many Christians, is a stumbling block. The church herself is a stumbling block. So what we have to do is retrieve a Christocentric way of living where Christ himself is at the center, Christ whom we meet in the scriptures and in the sacraments, in the service of those in need, in fellowship with other Christians, and build a, 
uh, a new Christian counterculture that can sustain us against the force winds of the ambient culture that's now hostile to the truth. Yeah, you used a word there that, that, that just as you're talking came to my mind. So one of the buzzwords we use in, in ministry circles is, is, oh, we can't count on exactly what you're talking about, cultural Catholicism. We can't count on that carrying us through. Um, but there's a sense that because we can't count on that, we have to embrace countercultural right. Catholicism. That's right. Which is what I speak of as evangelical Catholicism. And that is the next word. Can you, can you tell us what that means? Because that means a lot of different things for different people. Sure. And how does that, how does that work with being Catholic? Um, because I know you, you, you have a, a, a center that you're developing here at, here at The Center Mary. for Evangelical Catholicism. What in the world does that mean? Walk us through that. Well, the Greek word for good news or gospel is evangelion, which comes into Latin as evangelium, right? Um, in English, we have a seldom used strange word, evangel, um, that simply means the gospel. And the, and the um, adjectival form of that word, evangelical, simply means of the gospel, for the gospel, by the gospel. So... The gospel is the good news of salvation revealed to the human race um, in the Old Testament and the New. So the Torah, the Law and the Prophets, the Psalms and Wisdom Literature, all that we think of as the Old Testament, together with the Gospels, uh, and there we find that word actually used, the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, Mark, Luke. What is the Gospel? The good news of salvation. Then all the letters uh, uh, that follow in the New Testament. So in this sense, we can say the gospel is the sum total of all that God has revealed for the salvation of the human race, which Catholics understand to be contained in the inspired books of Holy Scripture and in the apostolic tradition, which the Lord Jesus himself gave to the apostles and commanded them to teach to the ends of the earth until the last day. So together, the scriptures and the apostolic tradition constitute a divine deposit of faith, the gospel, which the church must hand on from generation to generation without addition or subtraction until the Lord comes in glory. So to be evangelical is to, is to be a Christian whose life is rooted not in uh, the fact that my grandparents were from Poland or Italy or the Philippines or any other place where Catholicism is or was dominant. It means to be a Christian because I believe the gospel is true. Right? No one is born a Christian. One must be born again to be a Christian by water and the Holy Spirit. The sacrament of faith, which is holy baptism, is the beginning of the life of grace. Evangelical Catholicism says no one is Catholic because his grandparents were from Slovakia or France. You're only Catholic if you have heard the word of God and received it in the obedience of faith in such a way that it leads to your life being changed. Think of how Christ himself begins his preaching in Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance and faith in the gospel, which Paul calls the obedience of faith, is not just hearing, it's hearing in a way that leads to a, a new way of living, is the beginning of evangelical Catholicism, contradistinguished from cultural Catholicism, which is 
And that's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask, what's the opposite of evangelical Catholicism? You know, when I travel, uh, and priests often have this experience, uh, say I'm in an airport or flying somewhere, although who's been in an airport in the last 15 months? But when we go back to flying, I'll meet people in the airport who strike up a conversation and will say wistfully, I was raised Catholic. You know, If asked, they will not say that they're atheists. If asked, they will, they will self-identify as Catholic. Mm-hmm. They probably haven't crossed the door of a church in years or decades. Yeah. They don't live in any way that's obviously different from their pagan neighbors. But there's this residual understanding that somehow I'm a Catholic and I was connected to the Catholic thing. And oh yeah, it's probably because my grandmother was from Ireland or wherever. But the religion of the tribe is not the living faith of the gospel. It's a cultural artifact like um, um, the way we learn to cook, right? There are families that handle the same recipe generation after generation. Um, The gospel cannot be acquired that way. It has to be a moment of, of recognition that I need a savior, Christ the Lord is that savior, I come to know, love, and serve him by receiving the gospel in the obedience of faith. That's evangelical Catholicism. And John Paul II spent all of his years on the chair of St. Peter trying to help the church understand this is the only way Christianity survives in the new millennium. A new evangelization, meaning preaching the gospel as though for the first time even in places where it was first heard centuries ago. Um, And the Second Vatican Council anticipated this. The council itself retrieved the regular use of the terms evangelization, um, evangelical, and gospel in a way that had been forgotten for centuries. The church habitually spoke of the faith Mm -hmm. rather than of the gospel. Well, What is the faith? It's what happens when you believe the gospel. So the faith arises in a culture where everyone, or many people at least, believe the gospel is true. Now we no longer live in such a culture. Uh, The faith is the, the very thing that's disputed. So what we have to do is start over by preaching the gospel like a 19 year old college boy did for me in 1981. So what's the difference between um evangelical Protestants? Well, Protestants are, by definition, Christians who protest, right? So, depending on which community of Protestants you're talking about, the the disputed questions will differ. But in each case, they contend something about Catholic belief or practice is contrary to the gospel. The nature and number of the sacraments, for example. The nature of the Eucharist the role of Mary in the plan of salvation, uh, the communion of saints, um, the role of the episcopate in transmitting the gospel and ensuring the the faithful celebration of the sacraments. Um, So in the Protestant world, evangelical means a certain theological set of convictions for Protestants of one kind to distinguish them from other kinds of Protestants. That's not the way I use the term when Catholicism is the word being modified. 
Right. Evangelical Catholicism is not a party within the church. It's not a subset. It's not a movement or a, or a spirituality just for a few. It's my effort to explain what John Paul meant by the new evangelization, a completely new way of understanding what Christian faith and life is for Catholics, but new only in the sense that it's the ancient way. It's the original way. So what are those ingredients then that make up that evangelical Catholic parish? What would you say? Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Hmm. It is not enough that your pastor and the sisters who teach in the school know the Bible. Every Christian needs to know the Bible from uh, the earliest years of childhood. Um, um, This past Sunday, the third Sunday of Easter, uh, we saw the two disciples on the road to Emmaus rushing back to Jerusalem after they recognized Christ in the breaking of the bread and saying, uh, our hearts were burning within us as he opened the scriptures for us. There is no way to know Christ without knowing the scriptures. After the 16th century uh, uh, dispute, too many Catholics began to think of the Bible as something Protestants fuss above, you know, like a nasty divorce. I get the house, you get the car, you get the kids, I get the dogs. Catholics got the sacraments, Protestants got the Bible, right? But it can't be that way. We all have to know the Bible intimately because it's the word of God. We he- When we pray, we speak to God when we read. <coughs> Excuse me. When we read the scriptures, God speaks to us. <coughs> so that's the first step. <coughs> the Bible for everyone. Let me jump in and ask you a question real fast. Um, because I think this goes along with it. The word evangelization. Um, so many times when our Protestants, brothers, sisters talk about it, they have a clear understanding. We as Catholics, for the most part, scares the you know, you know what right, out of sure, us. Sure, of course. Because we don't use that word. Um, I illustrate this it, to Catholics who are puzzling over it for the first time by yes. saying to them, Comitiquiam. And they look at me with a blank expression, and I say, Veramente, la domanda è semplice, come ti chiami? I'm asking them in Italian what their name is. And then, when they can't answer, I say, you know what your name is. You couldn't answer because you didn't understand the question. Mm. So when Protestants ask a Catholic, is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? Most Catholics can't answer that question, not because they don't know the answer, but because they don't understand the question. Mm-hmm. It's, it's phrased in a theological language we don't speak. Right. Yeah. right. So very often the key thing is to help them understand the vocabulary. What is meant by these words? Usually grounded in scripture, we're going to study the scriptures and, and you will acquire a scriptural vocabulary that will help you come to answer these questions like, what is grace? How does grace change the life of the believer? Um, and once that uh, vocabulary has been acquired, then it's a little easier to teach Catholics how to talk to other people about their faith in Christ. So you asked, what does it entail? Scripture, and then the capacity to share the faith with others. My college classmate asked me to read Paul's letter to the Ephesians with him. That personal invitation was changed my life. I said yes out of politeness. He was able to do that because he knew Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 
and could walk me through it in a way to help open my heart and mind to understand it, leading up to that moment of grace when my heart was changed. So Any Catholic can learn to do that. But I, there, what is the fear behind, you know, number one, we as Catholics, we don't... We don't do that. We don't, you know, for us to go knock on the door and just say, hey, can we pray for you? It's, um, I've seen churches try to do this and, and just the fear that takes over people. Right. Um, what, what's, why do you think there's such a big fear about sharing the gospel? Is it because they just don't know it? So that's why it's hard to invite somebody because it all roots back to being invited, just like what you were sharing. Um, but you have to have to be able to invite them to something, and and and, and for a majority of us Catholics, we don't open the we don't open the scriptures. Most of the time, the only time we hear it is when okay. it's proclaimed at mass. Part of the answer to your question may be found in the division of labor in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the effects of the Protestant Reformation in many traditions was to erase the distinction between clergy and laity. Right, a distinction that we continue to maintain. So there's a certain sense that father's going to take care of that, mm. or that's sister's job. You know, we we'll do our thing and they'll do their thing. Overcoming that that false understanding that knowledge of the scriptures is something the clergy and religious will take care of is the first step, and then helping people acquire the 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 habit of being willing and able to talk about their faith. It's like, why, why do the words I love you stick in our throats sometimes in the most powerful way, right? The, the simplest, deepest, highest things can be the most difficult to talk about. When you have to do it for the very first time, to say to someone, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is terrifying. The your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth, right? But once you've done it, by the hundredth time, it's it's as natural as breathing. It's the first thing you say. Yeah. Helping at, at the parish level, we have to be able to do that to teach the scriptures and then help people acquire the habit the desire, the yearning to tell others about the Messiah. Think of, think of Andrew going to Simon. We found the Messiah. He couldn't wait. Once he met Christ, he couldn't wait to go tell his brother. Yeah. That's what we have to awaken. And I think, you know, that's the saddest part, I think, in our church is that we, we um, it, it, it's for some reason, it, it, it's Greek to us to a lot of us in, that are sitting in the pew. And that's a residue of cultural Catholicism. Yeah. As, as, as more and more Catholics acquire a habit of heart and mind of evangelical Catholicism, I think it will evolve sort of naturally as a consequence of a new understanding of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, just tying that in to what's happening now with COVID and the process that we're going through COVID right now, um, how do we react to those people who want to stay home and, you know, I'm not going to mass. I can watch it on TV, have my coffee and enjoy it. I don't have to get ready. How, how, how does the church respond to that? 
with clear teaching, with um, loving patience, with regular invitations to return. Um, that um, the 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 falling away because of COVID, after COVID is behind us, will will be one more dimension of the general falling away we've already described. 20% of those who practiced 20 years ago no longer practice. The non-practicing Catholics will almost never hear a priest. The only people who can reach them are the Catholics who still are in the pew. So if we're equipping the people who are practicing to find the non-practicing and draw them back, right? Uh, that's our best tool for identifying those people and helping them return to the practice of the faith. You know, and I hear I hear you um, uh, constantly reverberating through what what you're saying. Is um, uh, it's it's uh, I think we're we're often in in ministry, particularly we're always often looking for that magic bullet. And that like that magic thing, and, and the 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 one thing that we're gonna do, um, you know, uh, that's gonna bring people back. We're gonna put up lights and have smoke machines, and you know, whatever. Um, but it's not that. No. No. Uh, look, no one wants to be unhappy. And no one has to teach us that we should want to be happy. It's natural. Um, sin always makes us unhappy. My sin and the sins of others in my life will always make me unhappy. So if, even if someone is not preoccupied with questions like, who is God? What is the Bible? What is the church? What is the life of grace? Everybody is preoccupied with why am I unhappy? Mm. I'm materially comfortable. I'm, I'm healthy. Um, I'm professionally satisfied and I'm miserable. Right? It's, it's the conundrum of modern living. Mm. At, at, at a moment in human history when we have uh, unimaginable wealth, technological sophistication, medical science that would seem like science fiction to our grandparents, mm -hmm. um, we also have unparalleled levels of uh, despair, depression, um, uh, existential anxiety. Millions of people can't live through a normal Wednesday without drugs, mm -hmm. either prescription or self-prescribed, because life becomes intolerable. That's our opening. Mm -hmm. right to to hear the word of truth and meet a man who knows everything you have ever done and loves you anyway and who can take from you the burden of your sins and give you the hope of everlasting glory well that's the pearl of great price we just have to find messengers who are able to reach those desperately unhappy souls and say with St. Paul, let me show you a more excellent way. So do you think, this may be a bad road to go down, but do you think um, 
that people have just been conditioned who sit in the pew just to come, listen, do their thing, and then leave. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about people coming in and and being fed spiritually and then being sent out. And you're talking about boots on the ground, going to their neighbor, going to their co-worker, and sharing the gospel either by living it in front of them or inviting them to come and learn more about it. What do we need to do for... How do we engage those people that are been in the pew that I come because it's tradition. I come because I just, um, my mom and dad told me they write me out of the will. If I don't get the kids confirmed and I don't show up, how, how do we address, um, the people in the pew who either that or that, or just, they don't know how to do it. Can I add, uh, just one, one, piece on that is 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 there a way that we can use the remnants of 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 uh, cultural catholicism um to serve uh the gospel to serve evangelical catholicism um um to your question um deacon about the uh how do how do we energize them you asked a question about people who get the kids confirmed because grandma expects it. One dimension of evangelical Catholicism is a renewed emphasis on the proper discipline of the sacraments. Mm -hmm. We do not baptize babies if their parents aren't coming to Mass. That's a radical departure from cultural Catholicism. In cultural Catholicism, there are no questions asked. Right? If someone calls the office and says, I have a baby, I want to get baptized, the answer is, okay, here's the date. No questions are asked because it's a part of the culture. In evangelical Catholicism, the answer is, God be praised for the life of your child. Let's let's sit and talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ. If parents are not practicing the faith by, at a bare minimum, coming to Mass on Sunday, then there is no founded hope the child will be raised to receive the gospel. In which case, the baptism is not a sacrament, it's a sacrilege. It's the misuse of a sacred thing. So challenging parents who want a child baptized to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus is an entry point to this very project. Um, It's it's an uphill fight. We're we're swimming against the stream, to change the metaphor. There's a powerful uh, cultural force even in the exhaust fumes of Catholicism, that drives people to that. What do you do with a baby? You get him baptized, of course. No matter how your relationship to the church is understood, you'd be amazed how many people will come to get the baptism, go away until it's time for First Communion, go away until it's time for Confirmation, and then the newly confirmed goes away until it's time for him to be married, uh, and then where do you go to get married, right? Although and, now we're now we're starting to see statistically that that that's starting to erode. That's and right, it's, and it's You're moving not back. back and so the that. great yeah, yeah. the great falling away from the sacrament of matrimony is the next consequence of this chain. That's right. So my answer is let's break it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Don't baptize babies unless their parents are actually practicing the faith. And but that means we have to be willing to invest a lot of time 
with those young parents to say, let me show you the more excellent way. What does it mean to say you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? But theologically, when we baptize infants, and this actually goes back to the, <laughs> to the whole question with the Anabaptists, right? right? Um, and and uh, um, uh, the reason we have uh, infant baptism in, in the first place is that those parents are actually making a profession of faith on behalf of the child. And if the parents aren't able to make a real, genuine profession of faith... Then it's a fault of... And we're enabling it by baptizing the child without question. This comes up all the time when we get requests to fill out a baptismal sponsor certificate from a parish somewhere else. I, I have to go through this conversation, I don't know how many times a year. Somebody who drove past the church once in 1984 is asked to serve as a godfather for his sister's baby, right? And the pastor there says, you need a certificate from your parish. Well, I drove past St. Mary's once in 1984. That's my parish. He calls and asks for the certificate from me. And I say, who are you? I don't know you. You're not joining us on Sunday. In fact, one of the things that we have to teach again is that we're only baptized so that we can go to Mass. The purpose of baptism is to join the community at the altar of the Lord and be nourished by his body and blood. So if you don't intend to come to Mass, what's the point of being baptized? It's a, it's a, it's a, a reduction to the, to the most minimal understanding of baptism to say uh, it's a fire escape. We don't want the baby to go to hell, so we're going to baptize the baby even though the parents we know for an absolute certainty are not going to come to Mass. Hmm. No. I, I You know... What I hear you saying, and and I think, you know, those people who are, are in ministry right now, they see this. It's we're spending a lot of time with the young people, which we need to be. But our adults, you know, especially coming through the seventies, they have not been formed, and so we have a lot of a lot of people who come sit in the pew have not been formed and what it means to be a Christian, well, to be a Catholic. And so we, we put a lot of money to schools, which are great, I'm not saying that, but into religious education and youth ministry, but very little is done for our adults to keep them fed, to keep them growing in discipleship. Would you want to talk about that? Well, here's where priests have to step up in the pulpit. Um, preaching week after week after week um, to those people is the only opportunity we may have to help them acquire an understanding of the life-changing truth of the gospel. But if preaching is anecdotes, stories, jokes, well-meaning efforts to connect with people um, at a personal level, and that's all, they're never going to have anything more than they received from bad catechesis a generation ago when felt banners and balloons replaced the Baltimore Catechism. Um, it requires an enormous investment of time to preach well and preach briefly. Right? In my experience, 12 minutes, maybe 14, is the outside limit, and after that you lose them. Right, so it it can't be long, 
and it, to, to combine and condense in order to keep the, the text brief, it requires hours of preparation, study, um, reference to scripture commentaries, uh, an understanding that the, the first task of the preacher is to open the Bible, is to expose the meaning of the scriptures, to teach week after week after week in a way that continually reinforces the central ideas. If Christianity is not a revealed religion, it is a false religion. What is divine revelation? It's the word of truth given in Holy Scripture. How do we know that? Because Christ the Lord taught the apostles this and commanded them to continue handing that on until the last day. Um, good evangelical expository preaching is an indispensable tool to reach those people and fulfill the promise of evangelical Catholicism. Um, it's hard work and, and um, it requires a willingness on the part of every priest who's a preacher or deacon to sacrifice hours every week to this purpose. And yet the Second Vatican Council reminds us it is the first task of, preacher, of priests to preach the gospel. And that leads us into the next question of what do you love about being a priest? Sharing the gospel with others. Um, when my college classmate shared the gospel with me, it changed my life. It literally changed the, the course of my life. And, you know, at that moment, my classmates were preparing for all the noble careers of the world, for law, for medicine, for engineering, for business. And I was at a crossroads and trying to decide, well, what am I going to do? And I... I would, I would picture myself in a, in a gospel scene, like Christ coming into a village to preach. And then moving on, he and the apostles go on to the next village, right? And everyone in town goes back to their life. Except from time to time, there's one guy who can't go back to his life. He's going to follow. He's going to go in the, in the train of, of the rabbi from Nazareth and the right. apostles. Well, that was me. I couldn't go back to my old plans. I, I, I knew somehow I will never be satisfied selling anything or building anything. My call is to preach the gospel and share it with others. So that's the first thing. And the distinctive priestly way of doing that is in the celebration of the Eucharist. Here at St. Mary's, every Sunday, the 11 o'clock Mass is the solemn Mass, which means... The liturgy is elaborate. All the bells and whistles, the, the choral music, the ritual form, the use of incense, almost every word out of my mouth is sung rather than spoken. Uh, it takes about an hour and 20 minutes on a normal Sunday. Uh, and we've done our best to um, uh, make it as beautiful and reverent as possible. And in the two minutes just before the clock strikes 11 when the organ prelude is over and silence is in the church as I stand at the back and look through the length of the church uh, I love that moment of peace before together we plunge in to the sacred action of the Eucharist everyone's focused and poised and ready and then the clock strikes 
and the bell rings and the lights come on and the choir begins to sing, we step out of time measured on the watch, chronological time, and we enter Kairos, hmm. the, the time of the Lord. So that although it takes an hour and 20 minutes, nobody is looking at a watch. It's over before you know it started almost. And that capacity to enter the Kairos of the Lord is a magnificent gift. So preaching the gospel and celebrating the mass, those are the things. And, and Kronos just uh, just rang as we were uh, as yeah. we were uh, coming coming down out of uh, out of Kairos. Um, when you come to the end of your earthly journey, um, what what do you want people to say about uh, Father Newman as a priest, as a person? He loved the Lord Jesus and tried to teach everyone else to do the same. Amen. Well, now we get to the favorite part: speed round, one minute. Here we go. Speaking of Kronos. Yes. <laughs> Someone famous that you know. George Weigel. I was waiting for that. I, that was a setup question. Okay. <laughs> and you know him how. He was, he was waiting for you to say Deacon Jerry Weigel. Uh, George Weigel and Father Richard John Newhouse came to Rome on business uh, in the early 90s. And the rector of the North American College sent me to the airport to pick them up. And on the ride in to the, to the city, we became friends. Hmm. Okay. Okay, here we're going to really begin now. But I had to set that question up. Favorite dinner? Uh, a really good steak uh, with everything around it. Okay. Uh, favorite type of music genre? Um, oh, man. My, my playlist is so eclectic, <laughs> I'm not sure that I can answer that. People would be surprised That's, at yeah, my let's playlist. Go there. Yeah, right, let's go, right, let's go right. there. What would shock Well, you? I'm a child of the 70s. So when I get up in the morning, I ask Alexa to play uh, pop music from the 70s. You know, she's going to answer now. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, on my phone, I have uh, thousands of, of uh, songs from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. After the mid-90s, I'm not so much. <laughs> Favorite piece of artwork? The Annunciation painted in Florence in San Marco uh, by Fra Angelico, which is hanging right there. Mm -hmm. Favorite TV show? The West Wing. <laughs> Favorite subject in high school? Physics. Favorite saint? John Henry Newman. Favorite color? Blue. Favorite drink? Bourbon. Favorite vacation spot? Northern California, the Bay Area. Dog? No, let me take that back. Italy. Okay. Except I can't get to Italy now. In fact, for that matter, I can't be California now. Dog or cat person or neither? Uh, cat. Favorite scripture? Um, the truth will make you free. Veritas liberabit vos. John 8.32. Favorite time of history? 13th century. Favorite book? Lord of the Rings. Mountain or beach? Mountain every time. Favorite place to eat? Sobeys, downtown Greenville. If you were not a priest, what do you think you'd be doing? I wanted to be a physicist when I was a young man. Uh, I served in the United States Army and loved that, but I would probably be a college teacher. Okay. 
Father Newman, we, we just appreciate you taking the time to be here with us and, and to share it. And, and I think what you're talking about evangelical and what that means and, and how we need to embrace it, uh, especially as adults, um, that's, that's where it's going to be won or lost, I think, in our church um, as far as reaching other people. And so I just want to say thank you for, for what you do. Um, for you're also you're the pastor, but you also oversee a school that's very successful, and and you do a lot that a lot of people don't know, and so we're very thankful for you. Well, I'm an unworthy servant and have done no more than my duty, but it's a great joy to be an instrument of grace for others. No, no better way to say that. Amen. Well, thank you, Father Newman, and uh, thank all of you, and uh, to please join us next time on the Instep Podcast, where we. Walk alongside those who walk along with us.